again, um, continue with uh, greeting you, welcome you wherever you may be. Um, I say that with a strong desire to say, Lord of the dance, and the dance said he. Um, <laughs> and so we are thankful. Um, it is a privilege. It's been a while. It's been a minute, um, as we're accustomed to saying, that I've, I've, I've been able to obviously have the opportunity to come and teach. And um, really, I'm looking forward to um, diving back into Corinthians and, and weighing in on what I believe are, so, are, are such, helpful, um, such helpful instructions. Um, and, not, and not in a light way, you know. Um, we've always said that we need help. And um, we have the scriptures as our help. So we give thanks for that. And, um, and hopefully you are, um, you are duly f following. I mean, even though we are not meeting um, as, we, as we ordinarily would, um, my prayer is that you are um, indeed, um, even within the confines of our homes, our smaller circles, are finding um, ways in which you're... you're, you're ecclesiastical muscles, your um, ecclesiology is growing, your knowledge of what it means to be the church is actually growing so that um, when we are uh, again uh, back in each other's presence, um, we will see a marked improvement. And that's my prayer at least. So I want to read with you, then I want to pray. Uh, today we are looking at the final set, um, the, the last few sections of um, 1 Corinthians 14. So if you can turn there, um, I will be grateful um, if you follow. Um, and we'll be reading from verses 26 right to the end in verse 40. Now I'm reading from the ESV, but please follow in whatever translation that you have. Um, and then we will see what the word of the Lord has for us. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, 
earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful again to have um, an opportunity to um, reach out, the Lord Father, to our, our congregation, to even maybe, um, as it were, people beyond even our own local congregation, Lord, this morning. And again, we are praying that, Father, that wherever they may be, Lord God, that they will be finding themselves strong, Lord God, in you. Lord, in, uh, again, as uh, we see the world, Lord, in, 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 a, in, in a degree of chaos and crisis, dear Lord, um, these are strange times to be sitting down, it would appear, looking at what it means to be your church um, with, as it were, everybody in their own homes, in their own, um, in their own area. But again, Lord, I pray that um, these things are providential. Who knows, dear Lord God, how you are using this, dear Lord Father, to um, redefine what it means to be your church um, in each of our lives today. So Lord, even, you know, even this, Lord God, we know that you can use, um, as it were, the presence crisis um, to bring further your truth, your gospel truth, Lord, to all those who will listen. So, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this text, dear Lord God. May it reach us, dear Lord, and minister to us in a way that will help us to understand what it means to be, um, as it were, one another in there, Lord God, loving one another, um, cherishing one another, holding one another dear, um, as we know is, is your desire, dear Lord Father, for us. Um, that not only that merely that we experience the love of God, which is, which is a blessing in and of itself, but that, Lord, we would experience the love of one another. So, Lord, help us as we pursue for this goal. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, before I want to jump in, I want to say, you know, begin with, the theme of this particular chapter is everything in order. The problem with attaining the type of orderliness Paul wants for the church is that we will have to give up something we cherish in order to obtain it. Therefore, the trade-off is not, one, not as straightforward as we think, like moving from a hated disorder to a beautiful order. In many ways, we don't really think of ourselves as being disordered. Like the plight of a drug addict, or any other form of addict for that matter, it is easy to see the way forward by observing from the outside. We see the real potential of a better life if they can only stop. But the addict has the dilemma of giving up a habit that helps them to cope even with its diminishing returns for a perceived better. Our self-love, which clings to the ideal of monoculturalism, that is that desire I want to be amongst people like-minded to myself, people that look and feel and, and, and have the same kind of characteristics and, and taste as me. We look at these things and think, this is the best expression of, 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 of making me who I want to be. It's difficult to give up this ideal 
or coping mechanism of monoculturalism for some far-off utopian dream of unity and diversity. We have to be honest that there is something to lose here if we are to gain. But the presumed loss is not really detrimental to my well-being. Coping is not living. It's surviving at a cost. The Christian view of family is a broad one. Acts 10, 9 to 16 talks about Peter on top of a house in which God is speaking to him. Put that in your reference if you, if, if you, if you care to. But I'll make reference to that in a minute. The Christian view of family is a broad one that does not rob us of the affection and intention we owe to our family and friends. It does, however, put a check on our partisanship to certain groups, and in particular groups that exclude others. So, that we can be effective in each other's lives. This was the lesson that God was teaching Peter on top of the house. Namely, that his commitment to Judaism will stifle his ministry to the Gentiles. The challenge is, am I going to have a redeemed view of who my neighbor is or an unredeemed one? Has the cross redefined your worldview? If you want to look into this some more, please study the following. Look at Luke 10, 25 um, to 37, the Good Samaritan. Look at Luke 14, 13 to 23. Who should I invite to my home? And also, we see the same instructions in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. So if you want to look into this, who is my neighbor? How do I get a, a, a Christian view of who my neighbor is? Study to show yourself approved. Now going into our text today, I want to start, as we ought to start from the very beginning, verse 26. When you come to church, are you prepared to minister to the body? It's very easy to, 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 to assume that church is about something I, I receive from, which is obviously true in so many, in so many respects, but do we come with the, the, the whole idea that I also have something to contribute here? I believe the qualification here is that it's to everyone and not merely to men. What we have in this text is a call to balance in the liturgy of communal worship. One of the constraints of public worship is that it may often not conform to your mood or nature. For example, you may not feel like singing because it doesn't match your mood. Or you may find that the time given to singing is not enough. 
The issues we may have with church can be long, but we should resist the urge to become consumers of church rather than worshippers. We in the West are particularly susceptible to wanting things on our own terms. This is, again, one of the reasons why we've given rise to what we call entitlement culture. The way companies market things to us with the pretense that you are the boss is obviously part of this whole idea of putting us at the center of the universe. The result of this is that I am a consumer, that I as a consumer can deconstruct even a trademark burger and have it my way. Looking back at what we have already learned from this letter, we should be able to see the problem of self-centered communal worship. Today, we have no shortage of Christians looking for the most satisfying church experience based on personal needs or mood. The liturgy of the church, if done correctly, will be supported by the gifts and the talents present in the local body. That's what that, this verse means. It's, are we prepared to contribute? Therefore, if you find your church experience lacking, the best question to ask is, is it lacking my involvement? I move on and I want to kind of look at verses 27 to 33 as a whole. It's a whole unit that now unpacks what verse 26 now looks like or might look like uh, if not done correctly. Paul now turns his attention to the order he's expecting to see in the church service in relation to tongues and prophecy. This may appear to us, at least locally here within Ecclesia, as a non-issue, as we do not regularly engage in prophecy um, and we do not speak in tongues aloud, as we might assume. However, as you will see, I will challenge this notion of whether we do indeed prophesy and whether we do indeed restrict the use of tongues. However, Paul is making a direct application of order in the service, and we ought to be able to relate this to our own context. A couple of issues then arise from this. Firstly, are we prophesying or desiring to? And how might our Sunday services accommodate this? The second issue is, how do we distinguish prophecy described here with the prophecy we see in particularly the Old Testament? I think dealing with the second issue will make it easier to deal with the first one. So in certain circles, the role of the prophet is continuous in their estimation with that which they see in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament to some extent. 
But this view presents us with a problem. If this is true, then the canon of Scripture can never really be closed as God is still seen as speaking through his prophets to this very day. This is a heresy. And it is called Montanism. Do look it up if you want to study about this notion of God still speaking through his prophets today and adding new revelation. It's an ancient, you know, what we call the patristic period had to deal with this heresy and we are still dealing with it today. It is notable that throughout church history that leaders have risen up with differing views and Montanus being, the, well, being most notable from the established church and have drawn people away under the belief that they have a truth that supersedes all other truth. As we cannot accept the continuing authority of prophets in this sense, we need to redefine prophecy in a way that is in harmony with Scripture. A helpful illustration, and again, illustrations can sometimes, um, if again, pushed too far, be unhelpful. But by way of illustration, we could see the prophets of old as legislators or lawmakers. The prophets today, we can see as what we would call the judiciary, those who execute the law. So prophets today will work much like a, a judiciary does by implementing and prosecuting what the law states. So with our limited understanding, we grapple with scripture in order to better implement God's revealed will into our lives. Much of this work is done by being able to recontextualize a text correctly for our situations today. If we're open to see this, then what we see in the Old Testament prophets is very much the same. Prophets like Jeremiah applied the Deuteronomical law, the law given by Moses, to his current crisis. So when he saw the Israelites being surrounded, or the Judeans being surrounded by, by Babylon, he knew this was the judgment of God. As laid down in the law. And as he spoke to Israel, he said, this is God's judgment on us for our failure. He prosecuted the law. I believe that prophecy is at work in many Bible-believing churches today. That people who have grappled with the recontextualizing of the text and, and understanding what it meant then and, 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 and been able to transfer and see how does this speak to us today, that that work is indeed doing the work of prophecy. It is the way of speaking God's word in a fresh way 
by bringing it into the contemporary situations. And that, I believe, is all prophecy really is. Is revealing the will of God as being revealed throughout all of history. As the saying goes, if it's new, it ain't true. So we need to be careful about assuming certain things that are not true. So how do we learn from this as well in, in regards to tongues? Well, again, as we will see, when we make edification a satisfying church experience, the center of what we do as we are one another in each other in love, then we start to see that it's not about us. So moving on to verse 34, to verse 35. Now, this is conceived by some as not being genuine Pauline theology, but again, the overwhelming evidence is that this is indeed Paul's own writings and Paul's own thoughts on the issue, no matter how awkward it seems to make us feel about its place in this particular, situ in this particular text. I also want to make a note that the order that he talks about, um, verse 33, if you look in your Bibles, I don't know, depending on which translation you have, some people put the latter half of verse 33 with verse 34 and makes that a clear sentence. And for me, I believe that um, placing that, that, that 33b text, as in all the churches of the saints, makes more sense with verse 34. Again, remember that people put the verse structuring according to what they thought makes sense to them. Because it doesn't make sense um, if you put it the same way in verse 33, for it would read something like this, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. It would seem like an obvious statement. It would seem quite awkward, you know, as, as, as to believe that possibly God could not be the same in all different churches. But when you place it within the, the context of verse 34, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent, seems to make more sense and flow with the whole idea that Paul is wanting to harmonize the Corinthians with how church it, the church functions in other places. And that's indeed, when you look at the, te the letter, is what he's trying to do. He's trying to get them in line, you know, in their giving. With the Philippian church in particular, He's going, I don't have these issues about giving with the Philippian church. And so he is constantly using um, how he sees the structure of other churches constantly to try and help the Corinthians better understand how they ought to govern themselves as well. So that's my kind of like wrangling with some of the technical issues of the text. But let me now go on. So what is happening here? So if you follow Paul's argument throughout the letter, you might be confused about what he expects women to do with regards to having an involvement in church life. You know, as we look back to chapter 11, Paul does envision a role for women in speaking to the church. 
So what is happening here? There are two particular options that I believe make sense of this text. Obviously, there are more options, but given the liberty of my own deductive reasoning, I would like to present to you the two that I find more probable. Firstly, the problem is related to a real, to real female personalities that have used the gift of prophecy and tongues to gain one umpership over their husbands. Thus, they concede by law to male headship, but in practice, regain the headship via spiritual unction. This has led to the presumption, even to this very day, that females are more sensitive to the spirit. And so, the, so Paul is trying to put an end to this game. This whole idea of who wears the trousers. I find one illustration, it may not be helpful to you, but it was definitely helpful to me where, again, even looking at the royal family, I don't know if you watch The Crown, but I, I'm quite a big fan of The Crown. And even though it was no, it's been noted in very other, very other places that even though Queen Elizabeth wears The Crown, in the home, Prince Philip wears the trousers. It was actually notable as well that even Dennis Thatcher, the husband of Margaret Thatcher, also was renowned for wearing the trousers in the house. So whatever happens out there, do not assume that your authority extends into the home on my territory. I believe we ought to take male headship seriously and not play games with it. But that's one option. The second option is the problem is related to women or wives who are literally chatting throughout the service and thus adding to the disorder already experienced in the church. So Paul is advising them that their calls for clarity and, 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 and explanation about what's being said can be better addressed in the home environment rather than disrupting the flow of the service. As I consider this verse in relation to 1 Timothy 2, and it is wise to do so, I have to conclude that Paul probably has, caught, has caused to implement both of these solutions depending on the situation. And in this particular letter, I think option two seems to fit the context of orderly worship in which people take turns to speak for the sake of edification as being the most probable one. But it also appears to be true that Paul believes the community of the church does not overrule the order of the home, which is obviously going back to option one. And so even though he is saying that women ought not to be chatting and having these conversations with their husbands or possibly other men, that ultimately, at the heart of Pauline theology and his understanding of how the church ought to function is that 
this belief that there is indeed male headship. And I believe 1 Timothy 2 is the place where Paul is specifically laying the principle, like I laid out in number one, about making sure that women do not overrule their husbands in matters of spiritual headship. I must point out here that Paul's citation of 1 Timothy 2 is better interpreted, my estimation, as referring strictly to marriage and not to a general order of men or all men over all women. My fear is that if we hold this to be true, then Islam has an edge over Christianity in being more consistent with this principle. This is at least seems clear to me when Paul states that every wife should be subject to her own husband, as noted in Ephesians 5, 22, and as Peter also states in 1 Peter 3, 1. So where does this leave, this? leave us? Well, this leaves us with a high degree of certainty that women and wives have a role in the ministry in the church, as verse 26 states. We all should be prepared, and I believe that means all, all people, no matter what their sex. But again, I don't want to dwell on this beyond because much of this has been dealt with in Pastor E's series on female vocals. So as we move on to verse 36 to 40, and the rounding off, of this final section in this, quote-unquote, second section of his letter. So Paul now proceeds to shut down the dissenting voices from within the Corinthian community. In particular, he reminds them that they are followers of his apostolic authority. So verse 36 then starts and divides into two rhetorical questions. The first kind of states this, do they, do they do what they do because they have heard directly from God and so stand on that authority even if it conflicts with what Paul has taught? And the next question leads on from the first by presuming that the presumption, that the presumption of, of the first question, if that is true, that they have heard from God, it must follow that they have a monopoly on the Spirit of God so as to override or overrule any instructions they have heard from Paul. And that leads us all the way back to this issue with Montanism. This whole idea that the Spirit is speaking and as such that we can overrule um, earlier voices within the church or within the canon of Scripture. However, verse 37 clearly states that Paul does not believe that they sit in any position of authority. He goes on to state that if they are truly spiritual, let them acknowledge the Spirit's authority through him. Now, 
This brings us back to the beginning where the standard and the boundary for prophecy is already established and so we serve within those bounds. Paul adds his final qualifier for would-be prophets by stating that, they, that acknowledging his restrictions is the seal for genuine prophecy. Even up until this day, we see so-called prophets resisting the traditions born from Scripture in order to set up some new standard emanating from themselves. However, this is all under the guise of some long-lost truth in which they are, they are determined to reestablish. In other words, they don't claim it as being, well, it's not new. It's, it, this is how it ought to have been. This is how it was before. And again, as I said before, if it's new, it's not true. And some try to usurp that by pretending that actually this is going back to the real truths of the, of the Scripture. And we all can get pushed away into these groups where, you know, the so-called esoteric groups where we've got some hidden knowledge on lost knowledge, you know. Up in Croydon, you see these um, 12 tribe guys and all the rest of it who are trying to bring lost truths back into life. There's no shortage of these people, and it's not just merely what the, 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 the obvious choices that we like to, to kind of point ourselves at towards Pentecostalism or Charismatics. There are many who hide under this guise of presenting the truths of Scripture, even within the high churches. But please note that verse 38 now carries a warning, not just for the prophet, but also for the would-be audience, who must also bear the responsibility of refusing to recognize the prophet who does not follow Paul's protocol. In other words, Paul doesn't, doesn't believe that if you just leave a false prophet or a prophet to regulate themselves, then all will be well. He says that you, the church, you, the people who are there, ought to be also be vigilant. As we see in Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22, Moses also said, to the people. He put the responsibility not just on the false prophet or the would-be prophet, he also puts the responsibility on the people themselves. And he says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. More often than not, God never just struck people down. The responsibility of putting that prophet to death within the context of the Old Testament lay at the hands of the people. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not, has not spoken? How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Well, again, now he gives you a thing. If you say, well, I don't know how to judge this. So Moses then says, when, the, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him or pay attention to them. The best way to stop a false prophet is to take away his airtime. Council culture done right. 
In the public square, I have to admit, all are free. But within the church, no dissenting voices can be permitted. Other groups, like us, the church, have their sacred spaces too. I would not go to a socialist meeting and preach the virtues of unrestrained capitalism. Because that is where socialism wants to have its own voice. And whatever group you might be, but in the public square, all voices have the right to be heard as is consistent with a democracy. But as I said, within the context of sacred space, we have our right to hear the truths and those truths that are consistent with it. In verse 39 and 40, Paul summarizes his instructions just in case it's not clear. By first restating that his order of preference of prophecy over unknown tongues for the benefit of education is his choice, is, his, is, is, is how he wants them to prioritize their own lives. However, he does not forbid the speaking of tongues. Again, something that ought to be noted. His final word to close off this section is to restate the need for decency and order for the edification of the church community. So that's his summary. Now, the other subject of the cessation of gifts and all the rest of it is, a, is something I don't want to deal with here, and again, others have kind of dealt with, and, and, and obviously people differ. But again, for the majority of, of, of us, and as I've understood, we have never preached a cessation of gifts here. And so, as a, as a history of a church, we have, we have never believed in the fact that God does not, indeed, God's spirit is not at work amongst us and indeed we do believe that the spirit of God is at work amongst us and doing glorious things I guess sometimes people just want to see the frills and the spills and again so often we are not going to be you're going to be able to meet the standards that other people quote-unquote put on how the spirit looks So application-wise, what, what do I take away from this? So as I've already mentioned, you need a redeemed view of who my neighbor is in order to do this. If the knowledge of Christ's finished work on the cross cannot transform your sense of community, then I, like Paul, have nothing else to present to you that is better. Our common salvation in Christ has formed us into a new humanity that will outlast every other piece of unredeemed creation. And once we have begun to grasp that and its implication, it will instill within you a grand sense of the church's significance. If we really do grasp this, that the cross of Christ has made a whole new culture, a whole new people, from all walks of life, 
from all classes, all ethnicities. If we really believe that, we will start to see that what we see here in these small churches and groups of people, again, around the country, around the world, is the beginning of something amazing. It's not just merely meeting up like people meet up to go to the pub or people meet up to go to football games. What we do will last. And so Paul has mentioned in the beginning of this letter when he talks about us being the temple of God. We also, we also need to acknowledge that much of what we do in the church will fail to meet our personal wants. It will never be all that we want it to be. It can never reach that standard. And neither should it be judged by that standard, if we are honest. And if you believe that it ought to meet that standard, and again, go back to what I said in the first verse, then if it's lacking that, then how about you? We may want to be more we may want it to be more vibrant or be more somber or be more about singing or be more about exegetical teaching, but it's not about us. Or at least it's not just about what I care about in any given time or moment. It's more than that. It's about having an opportunity to join in the singing even when I don't feel like it. It's about listening to the fundamentals of God's word even when I don't feel like it. For the sake of community, we give up our claim to individual pursuits and make sacrifices for the edification of the body. The beauty of this is that it does not mean we kill off our freedom of expression. Because in the confines of our personal devotion, we have liberty. It is unkind to treat public places like private spaces. This is also true even in secular surroundings. Decency and order may not be sexy in its appeal. But if done right, it will give us the best opportunity to create the most loving and rewarding of all possible communities. If you look back to 1 Corinthians 13, like I said, if we hold ourselves back, if we hold our own personal ambitions back, we will suddenly realize that me Wanting to have my voice heard is not what it's all about. Decency and order will, if we allow it to be, the best possible way to order ourselves as a community. 
And in there we find our liberty, again, to be a community and not just to be merely individuals. Let us take this to our heart. Let us consider this and how we might live this because I believe that this is the word of the Lord. May the Lord forgive me if I've not represented everything as, as accurately as I, as I could have, but I believe that I have, I have taken my heart to this text and have given it the best that I believe the Lord has given me, and I've delivered that to you today. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for the fact that your word speaks, our Lord, today. As such that, Lord Father, it doesn't even deny the fact that even as I sit here, um, as it were, speaking this word into our new context, into our recontextualizing it and saying, this is what it means today. That, Lord, um, again, even in, through that, the work and the spirit of prophecy is at work in our own hearts, in our own lives. My prayer is that, Lord Father, that we may understand um, where we have failed to do this. We have all desired for church to be something more than what we've experienced. And Lord, again, um, as I said at the very beginning, the pertinent question is, is that, am I the one who you have called to prepare, you know, to bring that song, to bring that tongue, to bring that activity to life within the church so that it can be done? Am I going to let the responsibility of that, thing, of that continuing rest upon somebody else? Or am I going to continue to faithfully serve in there and trust that you will establish that ministry according to your time and purpose, Hello, Father, I, I acknowledge that this is difficult things to grasp. But Lord, I believe that if this Lord word today cuts out that, that consumer heart that some of us right now, my hold towards church and, and what church ought to be. That we're looking for that, that, that trademark burger that has our own image on it. In some church or some perceived church out there, dear Lord God, then, you know, I pray, Father, that you help transform that into something that will be more helpful. That, Lord, we'll have a redeemed view of who my neighbor is. that like that good Samaritan, that we would be able to take the interpretation of that text and say, Lord, it's whoever is in my need, who is, who's in my, my vicinity and needs my help, that person I owe something to. If that's who we are, then, Lord God, if, that, if we can embrace that redeemed view of who my neighbor is, then, Lord God, I, I believe that we, we would have made a step closer to what you would have us all believe about what your church is and what your church community ought to look like. So Lord, I, I commit this to you. I commit our church to you. Help us to embrace um, the need, dear Lord God, to curb our personal needs, Father, for the sake of one another. Curb our voices for the sake of one another. And allow, dear Lord God, you to reign amongst us as our Lord and our Savior, as we all come knowing it is the cross that has made the difference in our lives. And the cross alone, and even the, as Paul says, the foolishness of it, that we should see such a, a, a man as Christ, the God-man, in weakness, that this 
is that which unifies us, our common salvation through him. But then also, Lord, our common resurrection through him, that we are indeed a, hum a new humanity, our cultural commitments to all other things, as much as they have, have, have nourished us and have, and have caused us to grow. But Lord, we, we, we are also marching towards a new culture, a new culture in Christ. That ought, dear God, to have us, dear Lord Father, have our attention, capture us. Help us, Lord, to embrace that as well. So, Father, we are committed to, to having, um, allowing you to have your way in our church, dear Lord, so that decency and order, dear God, will allow us to flourish in Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.